Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. Mike, the U.S. is now at more than 572,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases and over 23,000 deaths. Are you seeing anything in the data that indicates the country is nearing an apex in this initial wave? Uh, Well, first of all, Chris, I think it's really important to understand that, as we have said time and time again, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, while it seems like we've been dealing with this virus uh, for many, many years, in fact, it's just been several months, and in this country, really in earnest, only about six weeks. Um, if one looks at where we're at right now in terms of this entire uh, pandemic playing out, I'm reminded of the quote by Sir Winston Churchill, who once said, this is not the end. This is not the beginning of the end, but rather this is the end of the beginning. And I think that quote really ap- describes where we're at in terms of what might happen. Um, several points of, of information support that. Uh, number one is, is that uh, as a respiratory transmitted pathogen, and one that is surely what I would call highly infectious, uh, there's no reason to think that this is not going to continue to circulate in human populations around the world until it has basically one of two things, either sufficiently saturated the human population with infection, including serious illnesses and deaths, and then resulted in uh, uh, the kind of uh, acquired immunity that may approach 55 to 70 percent, the number likely uh, that we would need before we would see a slowing down of transmission, or we have a vaccine. So assuming that this is going to continue, the question is, how will it continue? And this is where none of us really know. Uh, People may suggest they do, but I think this is for all those of us who have been tracking this uh, pandemic and have been pretty much right on in terms of predicting its next move. I think this one is the area where there's still lots of questions. Will this, in fact, be like an influenza pandemic, but caused by a coronavirus in which we see that initial early wave of cases around the world? and then they fade away. Let me remind everyone that in uh, 1918, uh, a very similar situation happened uh, in the spring of that year, as we've seen with uh, this particular uh, pathogen here. And that is that there were some very serious outbreaks in metropolitan areas in particular around the world, but it spared many locations. They did not get hit. And it was not because of any intervention not any kind of distancing because people didn't even really know what was going on. It just was mother nature. So we don't know really to the extent that even now what's happened over the past uh, eight to 12 weeks was how much we influenced it as humans. I like to think we did. I think our distancing behavior played some role, but also clearly mother nature herself was playing a role there if this were like 1918. Then once we actually, as has become well known as flattening the curve, if we did that by our distancing, the question is, 
would it come back? Well, in 1918, as we've seen with other influenza pandemics, there was actually a lull in activity after that initial set of waves that had nothing again to do with actual human intervention. It just was a lull. And then all of a sudden, when the fall came along, it picked up. Now, I don't want anyone to think that I'm suggesting this is going to be a summertime reprieve, because in fact, as the National Academy of Science recently suggested, there's no evidence to support seasonality with this virus uh, in terms of what it does to humans. We saw that with influenza pandemics uh, in the last 10 pandemics that have occurred over the past 250 years. Two started in the winter, three started in the spring, two started in the summer, and three started in the fall. And in each case, the big peak wave was about six months following the introduction of the, of the case, first cases and virus into the human population. So we don't know if this will happen. But if it does, it could be substantially larger than anything we see with uh, what's happened to date. And that, that's a very sobering fact. Another way that I look at this to try to help people understand this marathon versus a sprint concept, which is not necessarily comforting, but I think it's the honest truth, so let's just take and step back from all these statistical models. We talked about that last week briefly about the fact that a model is only as good as the conditions upon which you put in the model. If you basically suggest there will be complete control of transmission through a Wuhan-like lockdown and it's only four months in length, you'll get the model much like you see at the University of Washington estimate. If you look at the models from Imperial College and Harvard, uh, you see more of a long-term 16- to 18-month event where lockdowns or uh, mitigation strategies are only of limited value, and then you see a very different number. Same pandemic. Frankly, they could be completely consistent findings. It's just different ways to look at it in different time periods. The way I look at it to try to give people a sense of what we're in for is that same simple approach that I mentioned last week. Uh, if taking just the numbers of people who live in this country, 320 million, assuming that up to half of the people will get infected with the virus, which of course, we don't know that. It could be much higher than that given the transmissibility of this virus, but let's just say it's half. That's 160 million people. Well, we know that from data in Europe, in Asia, in the United States, that uh, the following is a likely scenario. We acknowledging that we have more to learn about asymptomatic infections, but that about 80% of the people uh, who get infected will have mild illness, asymptomatic illness, and illness that does not require any kind of medical care. 20% will seek some aspects of medical care, whether it be an outpatient visit. Of that, 10% will be hospitalized. Of those, about 5% or half will actually be require intensive care medicine. And of those in intensive care, uh, somewhere between uh, 0.5 and 1% will die with it. Those latter numbers are very conservative. Um, so in that regard, uh, if you just if you want to change your numbers, go ahead. But this is the numbers I use. Think about the fact that 0.5 to 1% of the patients dying would be somewhere between 800,000 and 1.6 million, if you assume that that's among the 160 million that get infected. Now, to say that 800,000 and 1.6 million is a big number, it compares in that regard to the 23,000 people who have died to date. So if you just use that as a milepost, you can see we still have a long way to go. And, and that's important, not because we're trying to scare people out of their wits, but scare them into their wits. We have a lot more work to do. We have a lot more planning to do. We have a lot more understanding of what's coming at us. And I think it would be terribly unfortunate 
if we spent the time over the next several weeks only focusing on how we're going to get back to normalcy because we still got a long ways to go. And uh, only by considering that can we better prepare to uh, meet that challenge. So do you see that planning going on? Um, and it, it, do you see a plan emerging for, for responding to the next stage of the pandemic? Planning. It's the very essence of what we need to do right now and haven't done. You know, uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, was famously paraphrased for saying that, you know, all plans are wrong and will not be helpful at the time when you need them most. But planning is everything and will be priceless. And I think that that's exactly in a sense where we're at right now. I, we don't have a plan that I think is meets the needs of this country or that matter, any country in the world. But we have known how to plan in the past in the planning process, and we desperately need to do that. There have been plans that have been established. Uh, they've been submitted. And uh, I think that I, I congratulate those who have made that effort. Uh, probably the most comprehensive plans have come out of the American Enterprise Institute and a second one that involved them as well as uh, the Johns Hopkins University. But in each instance, I think these plans um, start off in a uh, basic position that makes them uh, less than, than what we need. Uh, they all begin with a stage one, suggesting that the most important thing we could do is widespread testing, contact tracing, make sure that we have enough ventilators for our uh, hospitals and that healthcare workers have sufficient personal protective gear, none of which we're going to accomplish uh, anytime soon. And because of that, then we have to ask ourselves, well, what do we actually have to do to plan in that regard? And I think that it's fair to say that uh, at the national level, I could not tell you what the federal government's intent is with what we're doing today. Again, not a partisan statement, just honest. I would defy anyone on this uh, listening to this podcast to tell me, what is our strategic goal? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to basically uh, minimize the number of all cases of infection until we hopefully can have a vaccine? Are we trying to limit some of them? Are we trying to get the economy back at, a, at some kind of a cost in terms of illnesses and deaths that we consider acceptable? Uh, surely, I think we all would agree that we're not prepared to let the virus run willy-nilly and take down our healthcare systems um, that would disable the ability to respond not just to COVID-19 patients, but anyone who needs uh, health care. Uh, I don't think that we're prepared to say that the number of people that might die from that kind of experience are acceptable. So given that, what do we do in between? And I think that one of the challenges we have today is how do we thread that rope through the needle, where basically we do bring back society to the extent that uh, they are a part of everyday life. They bring back essential parts of the economy and they are at the lowest risk of having a serious illness or death as a result of their infection. Um, we need to have that discussion right now. It's not happening. What we're, I see us focused on right now is did we shave off that curve? Have we flattened it? Uh, do we have indications of why the economy can come back? And what does that mean to come back? All legitimate questions, mind you, very important questions. But I don't see really an answer uh, other than people continue to talk about testing, testing, testing. And I think that people don't understand that there's some real fallacies to that. Number one, let's just be clear about testing. Uh, I have raised on multiple occasions uh, on these podcasts and elsewhere 
that uh, testing is not going to be widespread available in this country. Just accept that. Why? It's exactly what we first uh, put forward more than seven weeks ago, in which we said that we are going to have a collision course with destiny called reagent availability. Uh, it turns out that when this uh, outbreak first began in Wuhan, there was a need for reagents to run the kind of tests, the PCR tests. These are the chemicals that basically are very critical to uh, being able to get the RNA off of the uh, swab that uh, is uh, was used on the patient and get that into a manner which the actual test could determine is the virus genetic material there. Um, if you don't have that reagent, you can't run the test. Well, after the Wuhan event, um, uh, it became clear that the rest of the world was also now going to need reagents. And so we went from a garden hose to respond to Wuhan China, in much more extensive testing, upped it to a, a fire hose. And then once the rest of the world caught on fire and 8 billion people potentially needed testing, we saw what was virtually a canal worth of reagent that we needed. And the infrastructure was simply not there. It's not now there. And uh, it's a situation that neither China, which has been an important supplier of reagents, or any other country in the world can just solve overnight. You just can't invent this. This is not about money. It's about physics. It's just you can't make up this kind of capacity overnight and construct these facilities. So I have continually said that develop a world where you're going to have limited capability. Um, I think the general consensus is now probably about 3 million tests uh, for at least the PCR testing will be available each week by fall. That's by fall. That is about 1% of the nation's population per week could be tested, only 4% in a given month. And so for people who think that they're going to base an amazing program on this, this is just naive. And I hate to say this, but some of my dear friends and colleagues have made very specific statements and say, we need to test and test and test, and that's what's going to get us out of this. That's not reality. Last week, I was uh, at a meeting uh, online uh, with a prominent foundation, which a world-renowned economist, a, a, uh, a Nobel Prize laureate in economy, proposed that we be able to test 20 to 30 million people a week, every week starting next week. And when I shared with him that that was not possible, his first reaction was, you know, I'm part of the problem because I'm such a naysayer, because I'm, in fact, you know, always beating down these possibilities. I like to think of myself just as a lighthouse saying, you know, you may be a big aircraft carrier, but if you keep coming at me, buddy, I'm not moving, nor is this shore. You know, this is the reality. And so that I think that there's an example right there with testing that's a real problem. We can't use it. The second thing that comes about in testing, which people haven't realized, is that uh, the test methods we use uh, have their own limitations, no matter how well the actual test is developed. For example, the recent antibody tests uh, by Celex, which is considered one of the state-of-the-art tests for looking for antibody, by their own published results, they have a 93.8% sensitivity, which means that 93.8% of the time when you have antibody, they can detect it. And it has a specificity of 95.6%, meaning that when you are negative, 95.6% of the time, they can tell you you are negative. Well, let's just look at the numbers here simply. If we had a theoretical 1 million population that we we're going to test, and we assume that the background prevalence of antibody for COVID-19 uh, virus is, in fact, 5%. That means 50,000 people. 
5% of 1 million would really truly be infected and have developed antibody. And now we're picking up the antibody. Well, if you look at the 95% sensitivity, 95% specificity for that, something we do in epidemiology all the time, looking at test performance, that means that out of the 50,000 truly infected and now uh, have developed antibody individuals, that 47,500 of those people would be detected and told that they were positive. 2,500 would be false negatives, meaning they really were positive, but the test did not detect them. But what's really troubling is we would also have picked up 47,500 individuals who would be what we call false positives, where we tell them they're positive and they're really not. That is the same number as the actual real positives. Imagine going to a healthcare worker and saying, we're going to test you for antibody right now. And, uh, oh, by gosh, uh, if you're positive, you have a one in two chance it's not real. Are you actually going to use that test in any meaningful way? What are you going to do to use it? And many of the people who keep talking about testing don't talk about these issues. They just ignore them. And this is a critical part. If you're going to do testing, which I am all for, if in fact it will make any difference, but this is really one of the fallacies of testing. The final piece of this is just the capability of having tests that you can count on even at the specificity and sensitivity I just mentioned. Um, we all recognize that what happened with the CDC and the development of the test methods that um, were obviously fell far short of what we needed uh, and when we needed it. And that's a story that we'll go back and revisit one day and figure out what happened. But let's move on. What happened after that was there was such a almost what I call political debate about how many tests were available and what the public health needs were that the FDA basically released or relaxed its uh, position on the approval of such tests by through emergency authorization. So rather than reviewing tests and actually approving them based on the full merits, they put out this very minimal criteria and said, anybody that can come to the table with test methods, come to the table. And if you can just pass this minimum test, you're, you're capable. Well, as of to date, over 70 different companies have come forward and have now received emergency use authorization for selling their antibody test out in the market. And they're out there, trust me. Um, the problem with that is, is that on a conference call last week, even a senior FDA official in talking to a number of lab directors said, and I quote, at least half of these tests are junk. Now, does that give you any confidence in what's happened with whether you're looking at antibody or you're looking at the actual virus through PCR testing? What does that mean? I look at the issue of PCR and I realize that, in fact, even there we have problems. We're hearing of, of reports where by running the same test over twice because of an accidental uh, testing issue, they found totally different results. Um, we have had uh, examples where just the kind of swab you used made a big difference about whether you were positive or not by several percent. So I think that we have a lot more work to do in understanding these tests. And if we're going to tie together uh, these contact uh, uh, tracing kind of activities, I really worry about that because what are the implications for are you really positive or not? And in fact, what can you do about it? Let me ask you, if in fact today uh, you were a person who was found to be positive and your data went up online and it was one of these new uh, apps that uh, Bluetooth-wise enabled, 
and it went out across the airways and your family and your friends all knew that somebody anonymously was near them at one point when they were infected, would they in fact shelter in place for two weeks? How would you enforce that? What would you do to enforce that? Would you have an enforcement police like they have done in a sense in Hong Kong and Singapore? Um, would you require electronic uh, uh, identification like a, a bracelet or an anklet so that you could know where these people went? We haven't thought through any of these things yet. And so I, I, I'm the very first to want to do this. And, and back in 1985, I led Minnesota at the state health department being the first country, uh, first state in the country and any government body in the world to make HIV reportable not AIDS, but HIV infection. And we did do extensive contact notification because at that time, based on a non-respiratory pathogen, but rather a sexually transmitted bloodborne pathogen, we had great fortune in being able to get to people quickly uh, and to follow up on that. So I'm surely not a stranger to or any way opposed to contact tracing following uh, a valid and comprehensive testing program. I see none of that here. And yet I worry that the whole country opening or reopening or closing or reclosing, whichever you want to look at, are all based on this testing program. This is wrong, wrong, and wrong. And so we do need other ways. And I think that's where uh, uh, we can talk about in a moment here, but the CIDRAP is developing its own national plan for which we think will actually add real teeth to our fight against this virus and what we're going to do about it and how we're going to get through uh, the next 18 months. So, Mike, can you uh, provide us with, with uh, some more details on that uh, national response plan that CIDRAP is working on? Yes. In fact, um, it's broken down similarly to some of the other plans. And there's obviously a phase one and two, three type of approach. In phase one, we're looking for really tangible returns. Not, not kind of, you know, test everybody or make sure everybody has PPE, et cetera. Uh, I think one of the most important areas right now that we need to protect in this country in terms of morbidity and mortality, and also because of its explosive contribution to transmission in our communities, is long-term care. For that matter, we could extend it to all conjugate living conditions. But in, in nursing homes all across this country, we are seeing tremendous transmission in settings that have had only minimal support in the area of infection control. Imagine with all these furloughed healthcare workers we have today, particularly many nurses, wouldn't it be a really very, very important contribution if we could hire them, provide them the adequate protection so that they could work in these long-term care facilities and actually help bubble them up so that there isn't transmission. If transmission appears to be occurring of this virus, they're quickly identified, the patients are cohorted, this nursing staff is there to help, they're skilled, they have a lot of expertise in overall healthcare uh, provision. Um, that to me would be a very important contribution right now. And the state health departments could basically hire these people uh, and bring them in with uh, just a minimum amount of training and then also help target some of the kind of personal protective equipment there. What happens is, one, you stop transmission in the long-term care facility, or at least you slow it way down. Number two is all the people who came out to see Grandpa and Grandma and Aunt, Aunt Kate and Uncle Bill now go back into town and they take the virus with them before they have any idea that virus is there. In addition, we see patients who are hospitalized with severe illness, uh, moved from long-term care to the hospital, 
Again, you have transport now involved. You have potential cases in the hospital itself, which result in transmission. Just merely bubbling nursing home long-term care would be a tremendous benefit to us. And surely that's something that could be a national priority that could be implemented quickly. I think the area of surveillance, I've already laid out my cards why I think that uh, Uh, We have a real challenge today with using uh, the kind of testing that everybody is so high on in terms of its limitations. But we need information about what's happening. Health departments for years have done a tremendous job that we call syndromic surveillance. It's looking for conditions or outcomes that aren't directly related specifically to showing that that is a specific infectious disease by testing. But for example, influenza-like illness, which is one of the syndromic surveillance programs that uh, is sponsored by the CDC, run by state and local health departments, and with the cooperation of physicians' offices throughout the country. And during the flu season, Routinely, the office uh, uh, reports to the health department the percentage of patients seen that had flu-like illness. And this has been a a very important indicator of just what's going on with flu-like illness. Well, during these times right now, there is no flu. But we do know that as was seen in New York, it was seen here in other states, Early on, as the flu waned in the month of February throughout the country, all of a sudden these little uh, increases started to occur. In some cases, they grew substantially, like in New York City. And here, the data were actually not picking up influenza-like illness caused by flu, but picking up influenza-like illness actually caused by COVID-19. And again, that's just one example of the number of surveillance programs that are indirect measures of what are going on that can be incredibly important tools. I'm very proud to say that the Minnesota Department of Health here in Minnesota is one of the active members in doing this. The kind of support that could help expand that could give us really critical information right now. That has been left off the charts as in uh, a potential area. This is again where CDC's involvement can be very important. I have been extremely disappointed in uh, the lack of CDC involvement at the federal level in Washington, uh, helping to make decisions because they provide a tremendous amount of expertise and we need to get them back engaged. I would also say the issue about uh, respirators and, and personal protective equipment. There's a lot we could do right now to make sure that hospitals are doing all they can administratively and environmentally to uh, minimize the amount of, of potential transmission that can occur within a hospital whether they be to other patients or to healthcare workers, airflow situations. How do you plan for caring for many patients in one ward without having to doff and don equipment going in and out of single private rooms? Uh, We can support that right now. Every hospital, I realize as much as they are as busy as they are, should maybe bring back some of their nurses if they need to, to actually develop a much more extensive administrative plan for minimizing uh, uh, transmission. What other kinds of equipment can they buy? There's a a powered air uh, pressured devices called PAPRs, which basically are available today in many locations, yet that also are ones that could be disinfected on a routine basis. What have we done to look at PAPRs? And who has them in in the industrial side of the house that could supply them to us, much as was done earlier with N95s? And then finally, even just decontaminating N95s. Uh, some hospitals are already working on that, but there are many hospitals that are actually not aware of what they can do or how they can do that. 
Instead, they're throwing away their N95s every day. What if we could, through three or four uses potentially, actually be able to take and decontaminate these masks? What about setting up regional facilities that would assure that this can be readily done, that you have set up almost like a laundry service where uh, potentially contaminated N95s are picked up and delivered back several days later after they've been decontaminated? That's another very practical thing that could be done right now that could save us tremendous numbers of N95s that won't have to be made up on the front side of more production. And just the issue of even bringing together a national task force urgently, urgently within the first, all these things, by the way, in my mind, or should occur in the first 21 days after uh, this report comes out. We need a blue ribbon panel on testing. Number one includes industry. It includes the best science minds. Uh, it includes the people who really understand supply chains and say, one, what is the realistic expectation that we can have for testing? What kind of testing? Uh, which tests should stay on the market and which tests need rapid and extensive evaluation by um, uh, the FDA that should be taken off the market if they're part of that junk pile. And even looking at international sourcing, uh, in Europe, they imported a number of tests from China early on in the outbreak, and they found that in some cases they had up to 40% of the tests gave false negative uh, results. Um, we've got to have a very strict monitoring of these testing capabilities. This group could be charged with providing that. Um, clearly, they would be advisory to FDA, but right now, this kind of testing oversight is just not occurring. So these are kind of upfront issues. Then we move into the next phase of saying, okay, how do we actually continue to support the production of PPE, uh, mechanical ventilators? How do we match that up? One of the other things that needs to be done very quickly is we need to actually understand that the current method of moving materials through the federal government is terribly, terribly, terribly inefficient and counterproductive to what incident command is all about. When the government is currently buying equipment today, for hospitals throughout the country. Um, they keep about 20% of it for whatever allocation. They put 40% in the stockpile, which I can tell you right now, having talked to a number of states uh, and particularly even a number of governors, it's like a roulette uh, table for them. They have no idea what they're going to get. And then they take the other 40% that's left over from the 20 that they keep, the 40 they put in the stockpile and this 40, they put on the open market, just like, like an eBay situation. The governors were not joking when they said that that was happening. That's a terribly, terribly inefficient way. We need an immediate review of how all of these particular uh, products, these particular mechanical ventilators, PPE, et cetera, are purchased and distributed. It should be equitable. It should be related to risk. It should be timely in the sense that we can move things around as they're needed in one area and not another. So our plan is going to address that. And then also, how do we work with the business community? I'm very happy to say that we're working closely here with the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. Um, some uh, uh, Neil Kashkari, who is one of the, I think, brilliant uh, people in the Federal Reserve System as the president, Neil and I have had uh, multiple conversations about how can we in public health help support the business community? How can the business community help support the public health world? And, and we're all in this together. And so I think that this, our report will also address the kinds of things that can be mutually beneficial to both parties and as goes business in this country, as goes uh, COVID-19 infections, as goes the country, they're linked together. So I think this report 
which I hope will be uh, ready uh, within the next week, uh, uh, will in fact lay out some of the critical pieces of information that we need to lay out. And uh, I, I just hope at this point that um, it's one where, uh, again, we further the conversation. And I don't expect it to be a be-all, solve-all kind of plan, but I want it to be realistic. When people get done at the end of the day reading it, I want them to be able to say, well, this makes sense. Or we can do this, or we can't do this, but at least I understand the can't part, why. So I hope hope that gives people a sense of what we're up to and what we're trying to do. Mike, let's talk a little bit about all the science that's being produced uh, from this pandemic. Uh, there, there's so much research being produced uh, on a daily basis, multiple papers being published, many of them not peer-reviewed, people rushing to interpret their meaning. Uh, how should the public absorb all this information? You've actually put your finger on a very, very important consideration uh, that um, in of itself, it would be a challenge for anyone to try to deal with just in terms of keeping up with the information. But I think it's only going to get to be more of a challenge as time goes forward. Um, What we have is the classic conflict between getting everything out we possibly can, knowing that there's going to be some of this information which is wrong, uh, not well thought through or that it is not relevant relative to the time that we're talking about. Let me give you examples. I've seen situations where papers have been written about the conclusions of certain interventions, such as contact tracing and testing, uh, of countries using more lax approaches to uh, control in terms of distancing and so forth, and uh, somehow major conclusions made about those findings. And then if you just wait a couple of weeks, it all changes. Sweden was a good example. Uh, For a number of weeks, Sweden, which had a much more lax distancing uh, approach uh, to prevention, uh, a much more kind of business as usual, when compared with its sister countries of Denmark, Finland, and Norway. And a lot was made about the fact that, oh, well, you know, this is uh, really okay. This works. Uh, You know, we're, we're, we're doing just fine. And then all of a sudden, about uh, three weeks ago, the cases departed quite markedly in Sweden with a big increase in cases, now well over 10,000 new cases. And meanwhile, Finland, Norway, and Denmark stayed quite low. Now, reviewing that information just a month ago would have given you one conclusion. Today, another conclusion. We see the same thing happening Uh, with things like case mortality rates, where we have uh, examples where people say, well, look at uh, something's very different here. You know, the the mortality rates are much lower. They must be doing a better job. Like we saw, for example, in Korea, where the early case cluster was in that large religious sect, which were young adults. And uh, in that instance, uh, the case fatality rate was very, very low because, of course, they didn't have the overriding uh, collateral damage, you might say, Uh, risk factors that they had to worry about. But as the virus spread through the rest of Korea, that changed. And now their case fatality rates more than twice what it once was just a few weeks ago. And so that observation, again, doesn't hold up. So part of it is in a rapidly changing environment, the results that were, in fact, correct six weeks ago may not be today. And the difference is the interpretation. So that's one thing. I think the second thing is, is that There's actually been a pretty good job, I think, of self-policing publications that have come out uh, without having been peer-reviewed, where they get peer-reviewed quickly uh, on the various uh, websites where you can post these papers without jeopardy of of, uh, 
ruining the chances of you're getting it published in a major journal. And so I actually think that that's, that's okay. I haven't seen major challenges to getting a lot of bad information out. There's surely been some papers, but not that many. I think the real problem is, I think if I stayed up uh, 27 hours a day reading, I couldn't keep up with what's going on. And even in our own group at SIDREP, which is uh, uh, well known for its ability to ascertain information worldwide kind of 24-7 and, you know, be able to incorporate that into our web uh, site and the information we provide, have been overwhelmed with the amount of new information. So um, we are drinking from a fire hose when it comes to information right now. Uh, but I think that's a good thing. I'd rather have that happen than not have the kind of information that we uh, could use today as we respond to this. So it's a challenge, but I think it's a good challenge to have. And uh, I welcome being overwhelmed with more information as we try to figure out how to navigate our way through this uh, pandemic. And I just I want to just leave one last thing, because when we talk about uh, so much information being available, et cetera, sometimes I think the one challenge I have is I'll be reading a paper and I'll think to myself, who are all these people that were the cases? Who are all these people that died? You know, whose mother died there? Whose son died? And I think that's still a really important point as we get the numbers keep growing and growing and growing and growing. We can never get forget in the first instance that these were all people who have been loved and were loved. Um, you know, I mentioned this before, but, uh, you know, the day John Prine died, <laughs> you know, I grew up as a kid. Uh, into my early adult life, listening to his music. And I must say, I shed a tear when I thought, hmm, wow, what, a, what an important part of my life. And so I think we're going to see more and more of that. And uh, that's part of what I urge that everyone who listens to these podcasts never forget, uh, you know, reach out, love someone today, be kind to someone today. Um, you know, we, we got some tough days ahead of us. And uh, the best way to start any day trying to deal with a tough day is to be kind to someone. So uh, with that last bit of non-science, but uh, truly felt um, feelings, I thank you all again for listening. And thank you, Chris, uh, for helping me uh, uh, share this information with the world. Thank you, Dr. Osterholm. And thanks for listening to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you can keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu.